Well, good morning, Calvary. It is good to be with you again and to be bringing the word before you again this morning. Um, this was my regularly scheduled week to, to have the chance to preach. We're always thankful that Pastor Nick uh, gives of this pulpit so freely to us. Um, thank you for the wonderful reception out in the foyer just a few minutes ago. And for those of you who prepared it, it's been a really good couple of weeks for me. Um, lots of really great things that God has done in my life and that I have seen come to fruition after years and years um, of following God's calling and, and wondering how he was going to work it all out when it didn't really seem like it should have ever worked out. Um, and he did it. And next weekend, uh, Tyler and I get to fly out to uh, Boise, Idaho, where I'll graduate with my master's, and I get to walk in that, which is just amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so God is indeed good, and he does indeed bring us freedom um, as we walk as disciples and resurrected people. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at two separate passages, but they're going to sound almost identical to us. They're very, very similar. Um, and in fact, they were written by the same person, but they come from two different books. So um, the first passage is going to be out of Luke, and the second passage is going to be out of Acts. And they were both written by Luke. Now, a lot of times we think of each book of the Bible as kind of its own individual book, written for its own individual purpose at its own individual time, but we can't think of these two books in that particular way because that's not the way that they were written. They were written together. And theologians and scholars look at them as one book. In fact, they call them the book of Luke-Acts. Just, just a little hyphen in the middle like ice cream, right? It, it's considered one book. And the reason for this is because Luke wrote these texts with one purpose. He wanted to depict for us the single purpose of God. And so one of our modern uh, theologians, we've read quite a bit of him before, N.T. Wright, um, he says this about Luke and Acts. Luke's agenda, Luke our author, is not to write the story of Jesus followed by the story of the early church. Rather, his design is to write the story of the continuation and fulfillment of God's project, a story that embraces both the work of Jesus and of the followers of Jesus after his ascension. From start to finish, Luke-Acts brings to the fore one narrative aim, the one aim of God, a message of salvation through the restorative work of Jesus. And so as we look at these two passages today, I want you to hold that in mind, that, that in Luke, we're going to really see the disciples watching as Jesus does, and then we're going to follow their story as they in turn start to do what Jesus did, okay? So we're going to start in Luke 8. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there, Luke 8. If not, it's going to be up on the screen, and we're going to start in verse 40. Luke 8, verse 40. It says this, When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. 
while he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe, and instantly her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Yet while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Do not bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying, because she is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So we have this story here, right? Here's our basics. Jesus is out preaching, and he's out teaching. He's doing miracles. The synagogue leader comes to him and says, my daughter, my daughter is dying. I need you to come. I need you to come heal her from this sickness before she dies. But he gets delayed by this other miracle that takes place. And in the process of that delay, the girl dies. And so the people come from the synagogue leader's house, and they're like, leader, leader, like, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter is dead. There's nothing that can be done. Like, don't, don't bother him. Let him go on his way. And yet Jesus comes to their house anyway, and he heals the girl, okay? So I want you to, to kind of keep that story in mind. There's so much in that passage that we could talk about. That's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Um, I love the story of, of this other woman who got this healing, but we're gonna focus on Jairus and his people and his daughter today. Now, I want you to turn over to Acts, okay? Turn over to Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas in Greek. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs, and since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. So Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. All the widows there approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and the clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body said, Tabitha, get up. 
She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. And so we're going to look at this passage in Acts just a little bit closer first. And then we're going to kind of come back and compare the two. So this passage says that there was a disciple, a disciple whose name was Tabitha. In Greek, they give us the translation to Dorcas, and we need to pay close attention because they're going to give us lots of details about this particular woman. Luke makes it very clear to us that she is someone who is important. He doesn't just give her one name. He gives the translation of her name. He calls her a disciple. And as Christians, we're pretty familiar with this word disciple, right? We know what a disciple is. Disciple literally means learner, namely those who learn from Jesus, who watch what Jesus does and then go and do what Jesus did. Remember, we talked about that at the beginning. Someone who's seeking to grow in the ways and the life of Jesus. Someone who wants to trust God and serve God and follow God. This is what Jesus calls us all to be about, to be disciples, to be nurtured by him, to be made more like him. But this word disciple in this passage is really peculiar. It is the only time you see this particular translation of the word disciple in all of scripture. You see it connected to her name, Tabitha, and that makes this the only feminine version of disciple in our Bibles. And this is important. Peter is again, not Peter, Luke, Luke is again telling us how important this particular woman is. Because not every woman gets named a disciple, a follower of Jesus maybe, or the women who were there. Sometimes we see them acting in ways as disciples or apostles. We see them in leadership positions. But Luke names this. He names this. And not only that, but he goes on to give her another qualifier, another elaboration of this word. He says she was devoted to good works and acts of charity. Now, other um, translations will say that she was devoted to good works and alms. And, And that is a signifier for us that she was really wealthy. She was really, really wealthy. She had a two story house, which was another indication of her wealth. And she used all of her wealth and all of her influence and her leadership of the church there in Joppa in order to perform these acts of charity for the widows. So we have this really, really, really important woman, and she has died. She's died. She's lying in a room upstairs, but they've heard, the people and the other disciples in Joppa, they have heard that Peter is preaching in a nearby town. They've heard this because Peter's been there doing all sorts of other miracles. If you read the preceding chapters, you will see all of these different miracles that Peter has done. And so they send word, come to us. Please come without delay. Tabitha's already dead, but please come to us without delay. And so Peter makes his way to Joppa. It probably took him the better part of a day. It's about a 10-mile journey. Um, He probably would have been doing it on foot. 
And when he arrives, he finds the room upstairs, and what he finds there is very similar to our other story, all of the people weeping. And why are they weeping? They're weeping because Tabitha, this disciple of Jesus, who's devoted to good works and acts of charity, is devoted to them for the widows, the poorest of the poor in Joppa. She's devoted to them, and she has died. They're holding all of the things that she made for them, that she had given them, the tangible pieces of hope that they had in their life because they are out on the margins. They don't have money or finances for fine tunics and clothing, yet she has provided them. She has given them the ability to participate in their community by being clothed in this way. They are inconsolable because this amazing woman who has headed the church is dead. She didn't do this for them because she ran a business, because she was trying to make money. She did it because she was a disciple. And Joppa is now falling apart, especially the widows, because she has died. But what I want you to remember is that despite all of the things that Luke tells us about this woman, all of the great things that she has done, all of the ways that the people are going to miss her and need her, the story is not about Tabitha at all. Remember, Luke's aim is the one aim of God. The subject matter of this entire story is God. And God is not finished here, and the people of Joppa know this. It's why they send for Peter. God is not finished. But if we look back at our story in Luke, Jairus and his people, the synagogue leader, he sends for Jesus, knowing that Jesus is nearby and Jesus can heal and Jesus is doing all of these things. They send when his daughter is sick. But as soon as she has died, they declare that they don't need him anymore because there's nothing that can be done. They don't know that God is not finished. They don't see that God is present. And we often do the same. We function and we carry on as if whatever will be will be and it is what it is and God is not present here. God can't do anything about all of the stuff that has happened in my life. God can't make that unhappen. God can't fix this. We function as if God is not president or present or if he is not capable. And yet, in Luke, they had the Messiah of the world in the flesh right there with him, and they didn't see it. But the people in Joppa, like us, they know the risen Christ. They know that the resurrection has taken place. They have heard the story of the risen Jesus coming to the disciples in the upper room and breathing new life into them, giving them a new mission. They know what it is to be a resurrection people. And so they don't despair that Tabitha has died. They don't even send for Peter until Tabitha has died. They know that God is not finished there with Tabitha 
or anywhere else. And so in the story, we see Peter come, Peter who witnessed this first miracle with Jairus' daughter, and Peter who comes and does the same thing, asks the people to leave, prays in private with his father, kneels by the bedside and says, Tabitha, get up. We see almost the exact same words used. And then she opens her eyes, she sees Peter, and she sits up. This became known throughout Joppa, and many more believed. And so these stories, they parallel each other, almost word for word, incident for incident. But we get a picture of what it looks like pre-resurrection and post-resurrection. And my friends, we are post-resurrection. We are resurrection people who know the breath of God in our lives who know the power of God in our lives. But we miss it. We often miss it. We wonder if God is on the scene. Because when God is on the scene, there is life. And so we have to ask ourselves, in light of the resurrection, in light of being resurrection people, do we believe that God is on the scene? Do we believe that he's on the scene in Ukraine? Do we believe that he is on the scene in the increasing tensions in our cities and our states? Do we believe that he is on the scene in the White House and the halls of Congress and in other seats of power around the world? Do we believe that he is on the scene in the personal issues that haunt our lives? Do we believe that he's on the scene with our wayward children who've walked away from the faith? Or those who have not come to it yet? Do we believe he's on the scene? Because the story that we read in Acts today simply confirms for us what we already know about God and what the gospels made plain to us. God is always on the scene. He's always been on the scene. He's always going to be on the scene. Sadness is real. Desperation is real. Anxiety and depression and tension and confusion are real. But none of those things win the day. They set us back, but God still has plans for us. Life and light still emerge. And that is the message all through scripture. Page after page, we are reminded, no matter what happens in our lives, no matter the harsh realities that we might live in, God is at work. Tabitha was a disciple who was at work with God. And you know, nothing is recorded, despite the importance that we see placed on her in this particular passage, nothing is ever said of her again. In all of scripture, we never hear about her again. And yet I think that her service probably only increased, having known personally the resurrection power of God. I think all that were with her weeping loudly, praying that God was indeed on the scene, their service and their hope only increased, their trust only increased. The gospel spread because if God could lift Tabitha from the dead, then it stands to reason that God could do work in their lives too. God could bring redemption and possibility and hope. He could bring them out from the margins and into community. 
And so this begs the question for us today, what is our response to this story going to be? What is our response to God going to be? Because we could just say this is a nice story about a nice woman who did nice things. She did lots of acts of charity and she cared about the people who didn't have anyone else to care about them. And there are lots of people in the world who are really good people, who do really great acts of charity, who give all of their money away, but they are not disciples of Jesus. They do not know the resurrection power of Jesus. And there is something different about a disciple of Jesus and the way in which we approach the world. We're not out to just do nice things. We're not just out to be nice people. We are a resurrection people who are out to bring light and life to places where there is no life. My friends, you and I were all dead. We were all dead before Jesus came and resurrected us with him. Every last one of us. We could not have saved ourselves. The world cannot save itself. It needs a resurrected people standing together. And so that's what we're going to do. This morning, I get the privilege, really, of of introducing to you something that has been going on for the past four months within the Church of the Nazarene. It's been quiet and in rooms by themselves. Since January, our denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, has been building up a movement of prayer that we are going to join today and that we are going to carry on with through Pentecost, which is June 5th, so about 35 days. It started with our six general superintendents and the 44 regional leaders around the USA and Canada. Those 50 people got together for a month and prayed every single day for the mission and direction of the church, for God's purpose for them. Eventually, the next month, they added all of the district superintendents to their ranks. And then the next month, lead pastors and associate pastors and staff, and last month, board members and ministry leaders. And today, all Nazarenes in the USA and Canada are beginning this journey together. A half a million of us in USA, Canada, are going to begin this 35-day movement of prayer because we want God's purpose to be fulfilled in us and in our church and in our district and in our small groups and in the Church of the Nazarene as a whole. There are prayer books at the back. Your students, if they're here today, have already gotten one over there. There are books back there for you. They're purple for adults. There are blue books, I believe, back there for children. Yes, Pastor Emily left some back there. I believe she's handing them out back in Children's Church as well. And we're going to encourage you to spend these next 35 days praying together. It's a simple scripture and prayer and a small space for you to record some thoughts about what God is talking to you about. And I don't want you to limit what God is telling you individually. I don't want you to limit God's purpose to you as an individual. But consider and pray over what God is calling you to as a family. What is he calling you and your children to do in order to minister together to God's world? What is he calling your small group to do or your ministry team or our church Consider all of it. 
Churches today face a number of issues. In the East, we see significant persecution taking place in the church. Here in the West, we see tremendous amounts of secularism or secular indifference um, to the church. We need to be united more than ever, and that begins with prayer. Anything that we want God to do, anything that God does in Scripture, we see that it is preceded by prayer. And as I was thinking through this, this idea of, of what, what they've been doing, I've been aware of it for a couple of months, and this idea of uniting all of us together um, and reading in Acts, there's a story at the end of Acts um, where Paul is traveling on a ship that goes out in a storm, and he tells them not to go, but they go anyway, and and God has a purpose in all of this. And so they're in this horrible, horrible storm, and they're afraid they're just going to shipwreck on the rocks. And the sailors are like, we're just going to jump and like try to make it. But Paul has told them, like, you are going to be okay. God is going to save us. God has told me this. Don't do it. But they want to do it anyway. And, and so Paul says to them, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless they stay, they can't be saved. We cannot be saved. We are in this together. And I think that God is saying that to us too. Whatever the problems the church is facing today, we need to face them together. We have to stick together. We can only be saved together. When it comes to unity, we can't have unity without also having holiness alongside of it, okay? When we think about being united, it's very easy for us to be like, I want everybody to be united in my way, on my terms, with my vision of what this uniting should look like. Because it's easy to be united if we don't consider holiness, it's easy. It's easy for us to go off and do our own thing. It's easy for us to pursue what's right in our own eyes. It's easy. It would be easy for me to fill a church full of clones of myself who believe all the same things in the same way and want them done just so. Prizing my independence without any concern for what the rest of the wider body of Christ thinks. There'd be no district superintendent or bureaucracy to bother me, no one to get in my way, but that is not the early church that we see here. And it is not our church either. It is not the church of the Nazarene. Remember our friend N.T. Wright, he says this about unity. The church is called to messianic mutuality, which is a really big word that just means this, a tangible and visible expression of partnership taking an interest in one another's affairs with a stream of accountability and encouragement throughout. Luke calls Christians and their churches to be united in one mind, in one mission, and in one service to one Lord Jesus Christ. The Church of the Nazarene is seeking to do the same over these next 35 days. And your pastoral staff here at Calvary want us to join in with this. And so I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to do something that's maybe a little bit awkward. It was awkward for our students at first, but they did it, and they've done it with gusto ever since. You have a board in front of you, and you've got a pen. I want you to grab that. A few weeks ago, I introduced to you our handprint prayers. You saw them up here. 
um, you heard about them, some of you took them, and some of you have talked to me about how impactful it was for you to feel like you were literally holding hands with someone else. And that's what we're going to seek to do, is to bear one another's burdens, celebrate one another's wins and praises and celebrations. And so I'm going to ask you to embrace the awkward with our students. If they can do it at the most awkward time in their lives, I promise you, you can do it too, okay? And I'm going to ask you to trace your hand. Take your board, set it on your lap, trace your hand. It's going to feel a little preschoolish. One week, one of the kids turned it into a turkey, like your little kids used to do when they would come home from preschool. I used to teach kids to do it too. There's mine. Okay, you're going to trace your hand. And on it, I want you to write your burdens, your prayer request. What's, what do you need us to be praying about with you or for you? What are the things that you are celebrating? My hand talked about my ordination and celebrating the culmination of God working in my life. You don't have to put a name on it. You can if you want someone to know and pray for your name specifically. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to receive communion in just a minute. And as you come out your aisle, down the center, a row at a time, you're going to pass by our altars, a place of prayer, a place where we come to meet God. And there's all sorts of handprints there with prayers from our students and with those in first service. And what I want you to do is I want you to leave yours and I want you to take someone else's. Leave yours there for someone else and take another one. Then keep moving along and receive communion. Let others bear your burdens with you. You can just pull it right off the board, just fold the little tape over, leave your boards at your seats. And we're gonna pray over these. And those that are left, the staff are gonna pray over this week. Next week, you're gonna see our boards, our coloring boards back up there along the back with the little cards for you to continue leaving prayers, to continue taking the prayers of others for us to continue as the body of Christ to hold up one another in faith. Because some of us are, like we talked about last week, depending on the faith of others. Some of us need our arms held up by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of us need to see that God is working. We need to see the celebrations and the ways that God is doing things in the world because he is he's always on the scene and so we're going to ask you to continue to share those things so as you finish up writing on your boards i'm going to pray we'll pray together at the end and then we will come and leave and gather and receive together Father, it is right and it is a good and it is a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you. You are holy and your son Jesus is blessed. And so we do give blessing and honor and glory and might forever to him. 
to your son and to your spirit who anointed him to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, to announce that you had come to save your people, to Jesus who had healed the sick, who fed the hungry, who ate with sinners, who through his suffering and his death and his resurrection gave birth to your church, to this church, who delivered us from the slavery of sin and of death and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. And so this morning we celebrate, we celebrate the table. We celebrate that Jesus on the night in which he gave himself for us, took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks again. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that bread was broken and that cup was poured out and it was given to us as his disciples too. And so this morning in remembrance of this, we do offer ourselves in praise and in thanksgiving as a sacrifice and in union with Christ's offering for us, we proclaim this mystery of the faith together. Repeat with me, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them to be for us the sacrament of the blood and of the body of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ. Redeemed by his blood for we are called to be saints and bring the world to Christ. And so by your spirit, I pray that you would make us one with you and with your son, one with each other, one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory.